Hello and welcome to Pre-Published. I'm Sophia. My guest today is Michelle Loverich. Michelle has written books for adults and children with publishers such as Virago, Bloomsbury and Orion. Titles include Carnavale, The Water's Daughter and The Book of Human Skin. Her novels are usually set in Venice, where Michelle sometimes lives, and always imbued with history, vivid imagination and an element of fantasy. She's taught Guardian masterclasses in how to write for children and is a consultant editor for the Writers' Workshop and the Faber Academy, as well as hosting writing boot camps of her own. There's a strong sense of place in Michelle's work, so I was happy to talk to her in her London flat beside the Thames, with the water flowing outside and river noises floating through the open window. We talk about writing history, Killing Your Darlings, about Michelle's strong sense of environmentalism, more important now than ever, and about writing as a way of confronting trauma and bringing a community together. This was a side of Michelle's work I didn't know so well, and she describes what happened after the London Bridge terror attacks in which she became deeply involved, bringing her writing and listening skills to bear. We recorded this episode in May 2021. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, Michelle, and welcome to Pre-Published. Thank you for having me. Um, recently, with uh, with lockdown and everything, I've asked my guests where they are while we're talking. But today we can celebrate it being the 17th of May in the UK by the fact that I am, for once, sitting at a dining room table opposite you, looking at you face to face, which is really wonderful. Um, and this time it's your dining table. So thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a great pleasure to have you here again. And this is the room where you write as well, isn't it? It is. The other end. Um, do you want to describe a little bit your writing space so we get some sense of your, your inspiration when you're here? Here in London, I'm in an 18th century loft. The foundations are from 1785, and it was at that point probably a glass factory. It had a sorry history after that. It was burnt down several times. The current structure of the roof is probably from about 1814, and it has little numbers etched in the wood, which are particularly cherished by um, English heritage, for, the, for <laughs> simply because they're numbered. Um, so I think it's like exaggerated Lego up here in the roof. And uh, the space was turned into a house for the first time in 2001. So I'm the first person who's ever lived here which is a really interesting feeling. 200 years ago, there would have been hop leaves, hop plants arriving here by boat, being loaded from ships straight up to here and then carried across walkways to the other side of the road where there was a grindstone, a massive grindstone. And then about 100 yards away was the Thrale Brewery owned by Mrs Thrale's husband, Ralph. Um, and Mrs Thrale, of course, was the muse and familiar of Samuel Johnson. So it does feel extremely historical to be here. And I have tried to keep the spirit of 1785 in the house. So as much as possible of what I own is 18th century. Uh, that doesn't always work for the kitchen or the toaster, but it works for a lot of things. And it seems to me to make for a harmonious atmosphere. And as I mostly write of the period set between about 18. 1785 and 1820 it works just fine well it's my favorite interior in London <laughs> thank you <laughs> I'm so happy to be sitting in it now and you might hear trains going by because we're which bridge is it that we're near there's Cannon Street Bridge where we're sandwiched between Cannon Street and London Bridge 
and I'm looking through an open window over Michelle's balcony and I can see buses um, going over Tower Bridge. That's London Bridge. London Bridge. And, um, and the river sort of going by. Um, you can probably tell that Michelle is a historian. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so it kind of it seeps into everything, doesn't it? But there's also, I mean, I can see the NatWest Tower and various skyscrapers across the river, um, and and you write nonfiction as well, don't you? So there, there's there's a mixture, a huge mixture of the old and the modern in your writing and and in your life. Try to make it that way. I think every generation has to make its own mark on history. So I try to write history that's eccentric and individual and a bit alive uh, rather than simply documenting the past in the style of the past I don't pretend to be living in 1785 although in some ways I'd like to (laughs) I know I'm living now I know I'm writing on a computer I know that my attitudes for example about disability about illness about gender are informed by right now but I still choose to write about the past but perhaps let's let's start with the, with the other side of your life because you're not always in this extremely beautiful interior. Um, but you you set your fiction in Venice most of the time, don't you? And you spend a lot of time there as well. So can you talk a little bit about how Venice is a muse for you too? Venice is pretty much a character in all my novels. So far, most of the novels have been mostly set in Venice. They sometimes veer off a little bit to South America and sometimes they end up here at Bankside on my doorstep, even even in this building. Uh, Venice, Venice, Venice is the font of all stories. Everything happened in Venice. Venice was the crucible and crossroads for every significant achievement in Western civilization, whether it was drugs, dances, opera, whatever it was, whatever you're interested in you'll find it in Venice. I once tried not to set a novel in Venice. I was writing about the first edition of Catullus. And as he was from Verona, I kind of assumed that the first uh, official manuscripts and that the first edition would probably be in Verona and was fully prepared to sacrifice some days out of Venice and go to Verona and research it. But I found it was printed. <laughs> it was printed in Venice in 1460, 1472 by two German brothers who came over the Alps in 1468. And that the folio editions on which the printing is based are also in the, li- in the, in the um, library in Venice. So there's no, there's no escape. <laughs> I try as I might. <laughs> And you've written adult fiction and young adult fiction set there, haven't you? Yes. For me, there's no difference, except I can have maybe a little bit more fun with the children's books. Um, There are things which you can serve up for children, which you can't serve up for adults. I I move very easily into, um, I think what I do is officially called histfic, histfanfic. Yeah, that makes sense. Histfantfic. So there is an element of magic and fantasy in the children's books. And in Venice, that seems more probable than improbable. If you look at the city itself, it's completely improbable. How can a city of stone float on the water? And literally, Venice does float on a cushion of water. Everything about Venice is improbable, so fantasy fits in very well. And it seems... To me, in fact, quite unlikely that there aren't mermaid sightings every day <laughs> and that, that we don't see 
ghosts in Venice because they are there. You feel them when you're there. You feel that the centuries peel back very, very easily, even by touching the walls. And one of my characters in a recent children's book has exactly that. She has what are called history fingers. And when she touches a wall, she can see what happened inside that palazzo 300, 400, 500 years before and becomes a kind of sleuth like one of your quite well-known characters um, to, to discover things about the past that need to be known. And that came out of my experience of kind of wanting to touch places. I, um, If I'm settling on a palazzo to be the setting of something I'm writing, I will always go and put my hand on the wall and just listen to the silence, listen to the water, shut my eyes and feel if that palace has anything to tell me. Not just the drawings of the architect, not just the physical dimensions of the palace, but there's some kind of resonance which all buildings have. I mean, they are really almost like living things to me. So interesting. I'm feeling really guilty now that, you know, when I've been to Windsor Castle and Buckingham Palace, I have not. Actually, I would have been illegal, but I have not put my hands on the walls and the maps I should have done. I recommend it. But you have to shut your eyes and listen. Yeah. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and we'll, we'll come back to, to your own writing, but I know that you support, have often supported other writers as well. Um, and you run these writing boot camps sometimes. And I think sometimes here and sometimes there. Is that right? Yes, in both cases. Sometimes it's a, what you might call a professional group where I'm actually the teacher. And in Venice, I have developed over the years a set of exercises and prompts which are related to certain places. Um, I'll make the writers dress up and scare people on bridges and oh, all, really? all kinds of oh, things. It's quite, it's quite full on. But amazing work has come out of those boot camps with um, just five or six people. And by the end of the week, they don't feel like tourists anymore in Venice mm-hmm. or visitors. They become absorbed into the stones like I am. And... Really interesting work comes out of it, you know, some of which has been published, particularly the poetry. It's different because we're all self-directed. We, I, someone will come with a project that they're working on and we observe nuns' hours and nuns' habits. <laughs> so get up in the morning, basically don't talk to each other, work. But in the evening, we will eat together and share work. To either talking about it, talking about problems, or actually reading aloud to, to one another. And that can happen equally well in London. I'm very happy to share my space with people. I find it's a bit like working in a cafe, that having other people around you can actually drive you deeper into your own head. Rather than being a distraction, it's the opposite effect for me. It's knowing that someone else is quietly thinking and quietly working in my space makes me relax into my own work much better. I completely agree. Um, I've had various experiences of it recently. There's one which I've I've talked about on the podcast before, which is this thing I'm doing with the London Writers Salon, which uh, is this early, well, eight o'clock in the morning thing where everybody logs on to Zoom. And and the astonishing thing about doing it in Zoom is you're not in the same physical space. And as soon as you start working, you can't even see the people who are on the Zoom call with you. And you clearly can't hear them because you're all on mute. So why it works is extraordinary. But the accountability I'm doing one of those as well. Um, Writers with faces. Right. And that's at 9.30 in the morning, you can log in. There are sessions in the morning and the evening. And again, you wave, you might say hi in the chat. And then you get buried in your own work. Every so often you look up 
and see another another face. Yeah. And you watch everyone heads down in concentration, and you feed your cat, you do whatever. <laughs> but it's very helpful. I don't do it every day, but if yeah. I'm here and on my own, I will do it because it's lovely. It gives you a real sense of accountability, doesn't it? And I, I find it it just kicks off the day because once I've done an hour's work, then the next hour's work is so much easier to do. Absolutely true. It's definitely unlocking the trap, unlocking the, and the fact that. It's a community, um, each involved in its own individual work, somehow reinforces everything. You do feel part of a, a cohort. I you agree. do feel there's a, a mutual intention, not just to write and achieve something and get words on paper. It's doing it well. And that's a whole different a different kind of operation is to to write well, to to be ambitious. Yeah. Not at least try not, to anyway. <laughs> yes, not just to get the words out there, but Let's make them words that are worth reading because it's a privilege to be read. And I feel you have to earn that with every sentence as yes. a writer. I have to not think that, try not to think that during my first draft. And it's then, too intimidating. And then, yes, it is. It just blocks me completely, but then apply it in, in later drafts. In, in the first draft, I find there will be a few paragraphs and sentences that live up to what I was hoping for, just a few. And then I take those and those become my, my level for what I want everything else to be. And that's, that comes with So that's drafts. the opposite of the kill your darlings idea. Well, that has to come as well. So funnily enough, um, I have to do both. So sometimes the thing that set the tone for the rest of the book is ultimately something that goes. Um, yes, I can never be quite sure about that. Well, it's one of the failures, one of the hurdles for beginner writers is that almost anyone who loves writing can pull off a fabulous first chapter. Yes. And then you fall off the cliff with the second chapter if you don't have the tools and the chops and the the experience to do what it takes to continue from a fabulous first chapter. So the first chapter sometimes I find needs to be discarded because it's the second chapter where you show who you are. Ah, uh, yes, absolutely. Um, my first publisher, Barry, always used to say, kind of start with chapter two, start mm -hmm. with when the story really gets going. And, and I've often recommended it to students because I, often when you start, you have so much backstory and setting that you need to get out of your head um, that it takes a while to get into the story. Plus, there's the natural tendency to show off. Yes. There's the natural tendency yes. to throw your vocabulary at the show, throw your, your metaphors at them, you know, do, do everything, blow your trumpet. And that's lovely. But even the reader can't sustain that. A reader actually you know, loves to be impressed and loves to be dazzled. But a reader also wants to curl up with your book and enjoy themselves and relax into it. And you have to honour that. You have to give your reader the experience they want. Yes, it's got to be transparent at some points, hasn't it? So you, the reader just doesn't feel that they're being written at at all. Written at is exactly <laughs> what can happen. And especially for writers who are um, either transitioning from poets or aspiring to write very literary work, that can be in it can be in conflict with a reader's happy experience. It's a really hard thing to mediate. I have always found it extremely difficult that I I read fantastically good literature growing up. I mean, I read everything. I read fantastically bad literature as well. But you know, I read Solzhenitsyn and James Joyce and uh, Jane Austen and uh, George Eliot and all of those people, and I that's what I wanted to do. But if I 
sit down and try and write that way, those ways. I can't read my own writing. I just can't bear no, it. No, you can't. Well, it's the worst kind of... Uh, it's it's insincere. You, It's what I was saying at the beginning. You, We are creatures of our period. We can address the issues of the past, but we can't be the past. Otherwise, it's just pastiche. Yes, but I mean, even even in terms of that sort of that that high literary value, I found for me what I what I admire in other people and what I enjoy doing at the moment is is more of the transparent writing. Yes. Um, a lot of people said in my in my last book it was a very easy read, and I take that as a massive compliment. And you because should. That's what you I really should. For. You really should because then they read it fast and they were eager and hungry to consume another book. So if you write a good book that readers enjoy, you're actually giving a gift to the next writer because that person will be going into a bookshop very soon trying to duplicate the pleasurable experience that you gave them so it's a very virtuous thing to oh, do good. but it's not what I think everybody should do um before we started recording um I was highly recommending Detransition Baby by Tori Peters which I've just finished which I found the opposite of that in terms of I was often I'm glad I got it as a physical book because I was often turning the pages back and rereading the last couple of pages and rereading paragraphs not because I hadn't understood but because I I just felt there were more depths to the writing that I really wanted to explore so that's very much not the way I write but I so enjoyed that so yes but I think the classical reading that you did and the what you called high literature Reading that when you're young, I think that's the equivalent of drinking milk for your bones when you're a baby. (laughs) That you, as a writer, you kind of have to do that or you grow up sickly. It is in my bones, you're right. (laughs) So you've got good bones and it shows. Thank you very much. Um, so when, when you're doing your, your lovely boot camps, I love this idea of the nun's life and the, the reading at the end and the sharing. Are you, do, does that tend to happen with professional writers? Yes. The, the boot camps are with my fellow writers who are published and who might have a deadline as I have a deadline or have a serious project in hand. Not, not writing speculatively, but boot camp works best if you're really into your book already. Yeah. If you're really... If you're just looking for the refreshment of a change of space, which gives you a different viewpoint, gives you a different window into the work you're already doing. I think coming to Venice particularly to start a new book would be quite intimidating. Yes. So you want to come bringing your identity and your literary identity with you as a shield against all the very dangerous beauty that Venice throws at you and which can be quite dangerous. My uh, friend of mine in Venice, a writer called Tiziana Scarpa, has written tongue-in-cheek about how dangerous the beauty of Venice is. And and that's why so many buildings are wrapped in scaffolding, because if Venice unleashed her full (laughs) beauty, people would just fall over and die. Oh, that's a nice way of looking at it. (laughs) There are other ways of looking at it, as we know. Um, Well, talking about other ways of looking at the massive scaffolding that goes on in Venice, um, we wanted to talk about environmental activism and how the fact that you live in these two waterside places has has informed other aspects of writing for you and other things that you've done um and I'm really curious about both of them really um shall we start with with Venice and how how that has informed your writing well possibly in the last 18 months it's more taken away from my writing um I work with No Grandi Navi, which is the anti-cruise organisation. And there's another one called We Are Here Venice, which is run by Jane Domosto. 
both of them are really trying to use the opportunity of COVID to make people rethink the whole cruise industry, which is not a virtuous industry. It's an industry that's rotten all through. It's not just the emissions. It's not just what they dump into the ocean. It's the employment practices on board, mm -hmm. which are practically slave labor. It's the whole ethics of cruising. The idea that a great big cruise ship comes into a place like Venice or the Cayman Islands or anywhere, and people on the 26th de deck are literally looking down on this little country and saying, it's smaller than I thought. <laughs> It's diminishing spiritually as well as physically to have these bullying superstructures coming in and dominating what used to be beautiful horizons. It also creates a, what's, what um, Salvador Settis, who's an Italian sort of philosopher, a guru of, of climate change, calls a servile tourist monoculture. Mm. which is diminishing to Venice's identity. It's diminishing to everything about the city. Um, and the same thing in cities all over the world. So I now work with another organization called GCAN, which is the Global Cruise Activist Network. And once a week or so, once a fortnight, we have a Zoom and we talk people, activists in the Cayman Islands, in Belize, in Juneau, Alaska, in Melbourne, Venice, everywhere, we all talk about what we're trying to do. We share facts, we share articles, we all try to write about this. And there is a real sense that between us, we are starting to get the message out there. COVID showed that the cruise ships are floating petri dishes for mm -hmm. all kinds of disease. They also showed, by the way, the cruise ships manage the illness, which led directly to deaths of people on board how they managed their crew, leave, abandoning them because they had no duty of care to them. It COVID put the microscope onto the cruise industry and what we're trying to do is keep it there. And in London as well, you're potentially affected by big ships, aren't you? Well, there was a, a plan to bring a party boat the size of a tennis court and several stories high right into the Metropolitan Thames. And it was an attempt to bring it in quite secretively, which we discovered only by accident. It would have blocked historic views. It would have caused immense noise. It was altogether a project which would have changed the Thames in a way that the people who live by the river, who use the river, who walk by the river, were given no opportunity to decide on. Uh, so I did have to spend quite a lot of time, I reckon a novel's worth of time, dealing with that and we did in the end win that battle and the dock it was hoping to have in the centre of London was refused by the City of London Council. Oh I'm so glad to hear and that. Yes so we, we won um, and I think there were more than 860 objections which came from all over the world, quite a few from Venice and the tone of the ones from Venice was always please look at Venice. Don't let this happen in London. For yeah. God's sake, let us be a terrible example. Let us be a warning to you. Do not do this. And in the end, the wonderful councillors in the City of London saw what was basically going to arrive by stealth and they named it and shamed it and outed it and said goodbye to it. It's lovely to hear activism actually working. I'm still kind of on a cloud of that. Oh, it did yeah. It did reveal those certain issues about the governance of the Thames, which are worrying. 
The Thames is run by the Port of London Authority, which operates on a charter that was written in 1909 and has been well superseded by the modern world, mm. but still is used to run the river. And certain issues arise from that now, which are very difficult to deal with. And it probably does need revision, but it's very, very hard to deal with something as secretive as the Port of London Authority, which is then tied up with the Marine Coast Guard Agency, which is then tied up with the International Maritime Organization, all of which are incredibly cosy together and which look very unkindly on la genteel lady novelists who want, to, <laughs> <laughs> who want to question their probity in the way that they do things. Yeah. So I've had some hilarious encounters with them. I've had some infuriating encounters with them. I continue to have encounters with them. I have looked into all kinds of ideas. I, I'm not the first to do this, whether or not a place like the Thames or the Venetian Lagoon should have legal personhood. Oh, that's which is a which is an idea which is actually working in New Zealand. Yeah, and in uh, Lake Erie and on the Ganges, that idea has come across. Mm. It's usually, however, associated with indigenous peoples. So, where succeeding cultures have come and ruined a river or a stretch of water, um, indigenous peoples have always had brilliant ideas for serving their rivers for a virtuous cohabitation with them mm. in which nobody suffers and everybody benefits. The concept of greed and mining and taking from rivers and stretches of water is not part of their culture. So in some ways, the legal personhood from the river has restored the river to the custody of people who know how to live in peace with her. Uh, Venice and London, well, I suppose I'm one of her indigenous people in London now. Yeah. And I would like to assert my right to care for her. And the people of Venice have been there since, well, they say since 425 AD. Yeah. So I suppose they're the indigenous people of the Lagoon of Venice, not the cruise companies. It, it's, it's an idea. Legally, it's a long, long way away. And I talk about it as much as I can. But in the end, I think I'm just going to leave a fund in my will to try and set it up legally. That's so exciting. <laughs> I'm always fascinated. I mean, going back to the fact, as I say, we are sitting in my favourite interior in London. <laughs> and and you might think, oh, that that makes it a very lovely kind of safe space. But you are always so engaged with what's going on around you. And, and sometimes that can feel anything but safe, but it doesn't stop you from engaging with it. And and you were here when the terror attacks happened just on the bridge that I can kind of see from where I'm sitting now, weren't you? And that that gave rise to to um, to some writing as well, and and a huge sense of community coming together in a really difficult time, didn't it? Yes, I was physically here for the second one and locked up in the house uh, for that. The first one, I was actually in Poland at a writer's boot camp on the shores of a lake in northern Poland, surrounded by trees. But because I run the local community organisation, I was hearing about it while it was happening and sat up all night trying to work out what was going on here. And when I got back a few days later, I just managed to get through the cordons because the un the unknown story about the attack on Borough Market, in which eight people were stabbed to death and 48 people were injured, is that 932 people live in the fringes of the market. 
all of us were either locked in or locked out for up to 10 days mm. because the whole area, our whole home, became a crime scene, which is a very strange feeling. Until the police had traced every one of the 50 bullets that they'd discharged, it remained a crime scene and everything was completely blocked off. The, the whole the whole place ground to a halt. It was completely eerie and very strange. Afterwards, I started talking to my neighbours and my friends in the area and to people who run the stalls in the market who are my friends too. After I, you know, I've lived here 20 years. And I had just finished working with uh, the Dowler family on a, a book about Millie Dowler and her disappearance, the press hacking, everything that came out of that act of violence. And I'd spent two years basically taking testimony from people who'd been brutalized by a dreadful crime and somehow turning it into something which someone would want to read which without hurting them too badly but also giving a voice back to Millie who needed to be much more than just a victim yeah. but was actually an extraordinary wonderful kid who had a great life ahead of her and was much much more than the victim of your everyday common or garden banal psychopath because psychopaths in the end are banal mm. Millie wasn't so I was fresh from that and thinking I think I know how to do this I think I know how to talk to people so one by one lots and lots of people from around here came here to visit me they came and sat here where you are and they told me the story of that night whether they were stuck on the bridge um, when the cordon went up whether they couldn't get home, whether they were just around the corner from the gunshots, whether they opened their house to a policeman, whether, like my cat sitter that night, um, were shouted at by police from the water, telling them, turn off the lights and lie on the floor. Oh, my goodness. And then had dogs and battering rams battering the door to the building and coming up the stairs. So everybody had a different experience that night. Um, I also spoke to someone who was stabbed, um, a very, very brave journalist who stood up to the terrorists. He had training in martial arts and he knew he could control his right down to his blood flow mm. and that if he was stabbed, he was likely to survive because he had the skills. Goodness. So he put himself between the terrorists and a more vulnerable person. So I talked to so many people and took their testimonies. At the time, I had no idea of publishing it because... I kind of suspected if a publisher took it on, they'd want me to sex it up. Mm. And this was about community. It wasn't about bloodshed and violence. I did look into the terrorists and research and find out what had happened and saw just so I could understand. Originally, I started writing poems. Um, I tried to shape the kind of pain into villanelles and pantoons and all kinds of forms just to see where the raw material went. Mm. I then went back to the testimonies. I wrote them in the third person and then I presented them to the people involved. I wrote them in the third person and the present tense for immediacy and in the third person so I could describe them and I could say things about them that they couldn't say themselves. Then I sent them to the people or presented them to the people involved and said, you can change anything you like. This is just going to be how you remember and it's uh, this is, I we're not talking about me as a writer I'm invisible here I'm a wall I'm yeah. a glass wall between you and your experience 
and hardly anyone changed a thing, which was amazing. So I was then here with a pile of material a foot high, thinking, well, that was wonderful, and everyone felt better for having recorded their memories while they were fresh and not really thinking anything more. And then I was invited by uh, Southwark Cathedral and uh, Living Bankside, a residence forum, to see if I could turn it into a play. And the idea was to perform it on the anniversary, the year's anniversary of the attack in the cathedral. The cathedral was subject to violence on that night itself. The police thought there might have been a terrorist or two hiding inside the church, so they broke down the doors of the church. Oh, my goodness. And they battered in the doors of the sacristy to look <sighs> for... And then the church had to be closed for 10 days just when we all needed the church more yeah. than anything. So um, I then took testimonies from the dean, from the sub-dean, from other people involved with the cathedral, and condensed all this material down to a 40-minute play, which we performed in the cathedral with most of the people speaking their own parts. And I just took the action through the start of the attack to the end of the attack, to the lockdown here where we were all locked in or out of our homes, and to about three months later when life was coming back to normal. Mm. And people had a chance to reflect on what it had done, what the attack had done to us. And the universal feeling was the terrorists came here to do something. In fact, they achieved the opposite because the threads that bind this community were so much stronger afterwards. And even the rehearsals around this table for a few weeks before the event, there were people around my table who'd never been in my house before, just people I you know met in the street but we were all here trying to serve the memory of the people who died trying to serve the memory of that really traumatic event in our area and sometimes taking each other's parts if someone couldn't be there which was kind of also part of the it was assuming the role of another and seeing the attack through their eyes Mm. um after the performance i was approached by um various trauma professionals who wanted to talk about the idea of this play as a way of expiating trauma and the way of responding to trauma. Um, but I didn't know I was doing that at the time. I just I just thought I was doing what I was asked to do. And I'm really glad that we did it because I don't know of any other community that's responded to trauma by reenacting it, in a sense. But it, it definitely has worked. And the friendship group that came out of Testimony, which is what it's called, will never die. Isn't that amazing? Um, and it's reassuring as a writer to know that the writing element of that can help, can have some kind of so salvation in it. They, people really said that also because I had a chance to be nice about people. I had a chance to say when they were brave, when they wouldn't say it themselves. Yeah. So Jeff, Jeff, Jeff Ho, the journalist who let himself be stabbed, he would never say to himself uh, or of himself, even though he wrote about the attack, he would never say, I, I was so brave, but I could say that. Yeah. And it needed to be said. And it needed to be it needed to be put together in the context. So I had this mental map of the eight minutes of the attack through the eyes, one by one, of all the people who went through it, who witnessed it, who just escaped it, who watched the people screaming, who were caught up in the screaming mobs, who comforted people. And 
it felt to me like an incredible privilege as it was working with the amazing Dowler family to have an overview and with privilege comes responsibility yes and testing <laughs> which it was um but so worth doing i i wouldn't i don't regret it at all in fact i was asked if i would do the similar thing for covid yes. for the community and i just said at the moment well that's a lovely idea because i'm not sure as any writer knows, you need a story arc. Yes, and what is it? We don't know what it is yet. We still don't know what the story arc of COVID is yet. And it's a much slower arc than the arc of an eight-minute violent attack on a community. So I don't know. I don't know if I could do it or not. Um, but it was nice to be asked. It's It, it fascinates me just the, the many different ways in which you connect with your surroundings. Um, you know, to somebody who reads your fiction, it might seem very obvious that it is the stones of Venice and uh, and it is how that inspires fantasy and um, and also sort of historical accuracy. But but there's so much else going on, um, which I'm only sort of gradually discovering as I as I talk to you. There is a unifying force in some ways behind all of this. Yeah. And force is a good word. Um, I am a companion, very proudly, of the Guild of St. George, which is the Ruskin organisation dedicated to the works and ideas of John Ruskin, who was an early adopter of climate responsibility, social responsibility, not just an art history writer, but someone who cared about the environment, cared about the rights of workers, cared that workers should have satisfaction in their work and not simply be slaves on a pyramid. And belonging to the Guild really colours how I think. And being a companion is all about not what you take from the Guild, but what you give to the Guild. Mm. So uh, the lockdown in the Guild has been a wonderfully cosy thing. We've had Zooms where we sit doing our own handwork while we talk about ideas, oh, which lovely. is such a Ruskin idea. <laughs> a Ruskin, Rus idea. Ruskin was really interested in women's work and women's handwork. And I'm working with an artist in Venice now called Deidre Kelly about the idea of making an exhibition which links the Lake District in Venice via lace because Ruskin set up a kind of lace manufacturing, which is now called Ruskin Lace. And of course, lace on Borano is a big thing yes and Deirdre works with maps and lace that's what she's always done and we're kind of working to tie it in with the words of Ruskin the lace the maps that join the Lake District and and Venice the water in both places meetings of two different kinds of water yeah, so we're yes yeah, so we're, <laughs> we're we're very excited about that and I can't wait to get back to Venice and actually work with her on it in person that brings me to what I wanted to talk to you about, which is what are you working on at the moment, aside from that? Oh, um, still working on the Thames, still working on cruises in Venice because uh, reports in the press that Venice has been saved from the cruise ships are massively over-optimistic. Mm -hmm. Another fudge has taken place. The Interessi, as they're called, the deep pockets in Venice, have found a way still to keep the money flowing into their pockets um cruise ships are not banished from venice cruise ships under forty thousand tons will be arriving any day now uh the plans to divert them from the iconic view involve dredging a highly toxic canal involve taking them to an industrial area which needs 300 million pounds spent on it 
Whereas there is actually a good solution, which was originated seven years ago and which is approved of, as far as I know, by all the environmentalists working in Venice, which is to make some floating pontoons outside the Lido on the Adriatic side mm. and use eco-boats to bring people into Venice. It's like a logical thing. It seems do. like a completely <laughs> logical idea. The only reason, as far as I can see, why it hasn't happened is because the interests have not worked out a way to monetize it yet. Yes, I can imagine that. I, I have various experiences of it. I remember in my early 20s as a student, sitting in Harry's Bar, which I absolutely could not afford to do, but I was there anyway. It's a rite of passage. It's a rite of passage. And, and looking up and seeing a skyscraper go past the window, and my eyes refused to acknowledge what was going on. But of course, it was a cruise ship sort of gradually going past, and it was very very strange um and not in a good way and not in a good way and that was in the 1980s but going back recently and yeah and and of course they're 10 times the size now that they were then literally and they do they dominate the skyline they dominate the feel of the place and yes it did feel very wrong and just knowing that people were being poured into the the place who weren't being um weren't guests they weren't being looked after by by venetian landlords they weren't giving money to the people who were there no they don't even they don't even use the restaurants the the cruise ships organize 10 o'clock dinners at night so that they the people don't have to spend any money ashore but it's not just that it's what the cruise ships do when they're in the stazione maritima they run 24-hour generators belching out nitrogen dioxide sulfur which is forbidden in land fuel these days, particulates galore. The people who live nearest the cruise terminal have no television reception. They have no internet. The tiles are blown off their roof by the um, upgusts from 12 cruise ships at a time, creating wind corridors. They're like, they're sick. They're getting cancer. It's a blight. It's an absolute blight. And the cruise ships pay a small amount to the port authority to be there. But that's not getting back into the homes of the lives and the lives of the people yeah. who are who are hurt by it. And that's not to even say what's being discharged into the water. You it's it there there's there's no virtuous side to the cruise industry in Venice apart from a few jobs which um the Deferco, the plan for the outside the Lido, um wouldn't resupply easily. That it would it would give jobs working on eco boats which were powered by electricity or wind. So no dioxides would come into Venice. No particulates would come into Venice if that was done. And as as I said, there's no reason for this not to happen except that certain people wouldn't make any money out of it. Well, if you were to run for some kind of political whatever, <laughs> I would vote for you in Thank a heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> but I wouldn't, because basically I do want to be a writer. Yes. Are you working on anything fictional alongside the activism? Yes. I'm just finishing um, a sequel to The Book of Human Skin, which was my novel set partly in Venice and partly in Peru. This one is set partly in Venice, partly Peru, and also in the Lofoten Islands in Norway. And it carries forward one character from the Book of Human Skin, but the whole setup is standalone and separate. Uh, it's quite ambitious and eccentric, uh, uh, maybe too much so. Is the Book of Human Skin one where a recent um, reviewer said that it was one of his six favourite books of this century? Yes, that was so nice. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> yes. yes, alongside Atonement and various yes. others. So yes, I was in very starry company. You were in very starry Very company. astonished, so extremely so. astonished. <laughs> so, so yes, I'm also working on a new children's book, uh, which is set 
mostly around here, involves a group of Venetian children coming to London for the opening of Southwark Cathedral in 1905, when it was mm. elevated from being uh, a parish church to being a cathedral. And with my children's books, I also do look at some quite hard ideas, if I possibly can. So this one's looking at disability and shame, which is something children do feel very keenly yes. and are made to feel very keenly, obviously in different ways to the ways they were made to feel it in 1905. Um, also looking at eugenics, which was just starting to be fashionable then, and that, of course, ties in with disability um, in a horrible way. Yeah. So when you write about the past, but with for a current audience, it gives you a chance to say, we have corrected because we really needed to make that correction because attitudes in 1905 may have been well-meaning, but they were not serving the people who needed to be helped. So, for example, there was a charity operating in this area at that time, which was called the Guild of the Brave Poor Things. <laughs> That's not patronising at all. <laughs> hardly at all, hardly at all. And they used to have their play sessions in the chapter house of Southwark Cathedral. So I'm using them in the book, but I... Um, hoping with the way I'm writing them that I'm empowering these children not to be patronised. I'm trying to make them patronise-proof that because wonderful. that seems to be a way to deal with it. But of course, I have a, uh, a, villain, a villainess who's a eugenicist and uh, I don't want her to win. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, that sums, sums up the way that, that your, your life has worked absolutely beautifully. Before we finish, um, I always ask my guests if they have any particular tips for people who are trying to get published at the moment um, in their, the way they approach their writing. I would say don't be a whore. Don't write for the market. Don't write or try to write like the latest book that just sold a lot of copies or got a big advance. Be yourself, just be your best possible self. And your best possible self doesn't come out in the first draft. Your best possible self may take 10 drafts to find. But just don't try to emulate, even if you love someone else's writing. That can't be yours. I'm guilty of this myself. You know, every time I read a fabulous book, I think, oh, I'm going to make my next book or my current book more like that because yes. I love that, not because of market whorishness, <laughs> but just because I love that. And I'll catch myself writing three or four paragraphs in the style of in tribute to, like a, like a tribute band to the author I've just really enjoyed and admired. But that has to go because it's it's no use. That's their job to write as themselves. Your job is to write as yourself and for yourself. And if you can't believe in that, if you can't produce something that's for you, you'll never survive the editing process. You won't even survive the copy edit because if you haven't got the full conviction in what you've written, you won't be able to take the challenges which come along the way in being published when someone questions your judgment about a character and says, oh, I don't think your character would do this. You have to know in your gut that that character was born to do that and you have to be able to stand up for the character's right to do that that would be my advice <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful i've really enjoyed this thank you so thank much thank you for me that. too thank you for letting me rave on about all the things i care about <laughs> i'd like to thank christopher pett for editing and producing this episode of pre-published you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and if you've enjoyed this episode please leave us a review 
You can also join us on Twitter at Prepub Podcast and find me at my children's books website, which is sophiabennett.com, or my adult crime series website, which is sjbennettbooks.com.